Black Cats Run Podcast. Episode 4, Win Pro Nets. Let's talk about winning. Winning can come in many different forms. However, there is a particular kind of winning that is the most celebrated among the connoisseurs of the experience, those who look for that particular thrill of sport. Winning championships, specific events that have been designed to draw out the best people in a particular field or discipline of racing and assemble them together in one place. We're going to talk in this episode about how to win the Pro National Cycling Road Race. Now, when we talk about winning, most of us, unfortunately, winning races outright is going to be a rare occurrence and some of us a lot of us won't ever get to have that experience I don't think that's necessarily a total loss I think that that experience that feeling of winning is really just about overcoming some sort of significant adversity and winning is something that matters more in sports where you can't create some sort of objective measure of performance. It's fun and it's exhilarating because it means you've proved something to yourself. You've taken this feat that people have attempted and you have engaged with that known quantity of adversity and you have played that game and due to the combination of preparation, circumstance, right? We may say luck, works out in your favor. And it can be really satisfying. But the other concept of winning is anytime we go out and overcome adversity. When you go out and you blow your mind with an exceptional performance, it is just as satisfying. It's about really what are we buying into as being the most significant thing to focus on, to think about. And I think overall, when we're talking about how to win the pro national road race in cycling, or pro nats, we're talking about a broad concept that has reciprocity across all experience. For people who are in the position to win, outright for people who aren't going to win but are looking to have a meaningful, rewarding experience through their participation in this episode. Specifically, we're going to be talking about trying to win, how to win, the women's pro nats race in Knoxville in June of this year, 2023. So if you're an athlete who maybe thinks that there's this space in which female training is somehow useless or has no value for males, then I suppose here's your opportunity to exit the ride before we really get rolling. But I would 
point out that that's probably a little bit of a backwards thought and that reaches back to ideas about you know uteruses hitting the floor if women dare to exercise so i think that also it's important to let the runners know that this also applies to you because this concepts that are going to be in here are going to combine things that can be learned from both sports and things that can be applied to both sports. So although on the one hand, we are going to talk specifically about how to win this particular race, and I will break that down to the nth degree, we're also talking about a concept of let's look at taking a target, using strategy, and applying some of these concepts that we've been talking about in the podcast in general in a specific targeted way. So having said that, uh, we're looking at the female race. I would say that I believe there is no difference between what the female approach should be or the male approach should be. I think that's nonsense. I really do. The variation between individual to individual, I think, is greater and more meaningful than the variation between female to male. I think a lot of our perception of a huge disconnect in women's physical capacities to perform things like athletics has to do with the ways in which we've perpetuated these beliefs that sort of relegate and constrain um, women's opportunities in culture and society. And that's just a historical fact. I, I mean, I think if you look at any surface level perspective on that, it's abundantly clear that women have been aggressively denied opportunities. And even in contemporary society, I think there's still uh, overwhelming evidence that it's more of an illusion than an actuality that women are being given, you know, full opportunities. And an extension of that is, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, the disconnect between race distances. Women are looking to do maybe nine or ten laps of the course, and the men do significantly more. I would say what the men are doing, in some sense, is sort of a different event because the duration is so much greater. And certainly if you're looking at it in a running perspective, you would consider it to be a different event. I mean, we make a big deal as runners out of the difference between the 5,000 and the 10,000 or the 1,600 and the 3,200. And it's interesting because you do see that some people will perform better in one than the other, but you know how much of that is actual ability versus how much of that is perspective and belief in your capacity to perform well in those given events. I don't know. It's hard to really try to make a differentiation between those things. But training should be done on an individual basis. We need to understand the individual. And if you think that you can um, reach lump sum conclusions on the basis of sex, then you're going to struggle um, as a coach and as an athlete. Because if you make an assumption that the most important thing about you is if you're male or female, and then you can derive everything you need to know from training on that basis about yourself, that's absurd. And, you know, we know this because if we look, the 
top female athletes are better than virtually all of the male athletes in their same athletic discipline. So, I mean, this concept that, you know, the men are up here, the women are down here, there's this male-female differential, men have different capacities, I think is false. Certainly, we have the dynamic to consider gender, right, social construct. Then we're looking at, you know, are there important physiological differences? And I think, you know, there's the obvious answer to the question, well, of course, there's physiological differences, right? You can define those uh, pretty clearly. But in terms of when we think about athletic performance and engaging with that, how informative is that really? I think that you're looking at characteristics that as an individual, know yourself, understand where you're at. Because the fact that you are a female or a male is not the most important thing to know. Who you are as a person is the most important thing to know. What do you respond to? What does and doesn't affect you and your capacity to perform competitively? That's what I think we want to be focused on. And we don't want to be giving energy to these kinds of antiquated insistences, basically, that, you know, a fragility and delicacy and vulnerability, whether that's physical or emotional. I think that the point is women can do um, as much as what men can do. And it's a very, very, very tiny percentage of men who can outperform the absolute top women in all these kinds of athletic disciplines. And I think if we didn't have so much social constraint around women's opportunities still in society, I think we would see even further evidence that the differences aren't nearly as great as we think. And I think it speaks to the fact that everybody has real capacity to adapt and change and get stronger and improve at things, provided they're giving themselves the opportunity to really do so. There are just limitations in general to putting too much stock in physiological concepts. Again, not anti-science, but more pro-science and recognizing that the capacity of science to understand is really great, partly because we know fairly little of what is possible to make sense of. You know, and as we understand those mechanisms better, then things will shift more in favor of that. And I think that those mechanisms and the understanding of those will probably tend to feed and support the notion that differentiation on the basis of who individuals are is really the most important thing for us to be thinking about when looking at these sports. We want to try to establish sort of the two things. Number one, what is our conceptual approach? Executing a concept, and therefore the antecedent to that is knowing what the concept is, is the most important thing we can do if we're trying to build an effective strategy towards winning or, right, you know, proxy out winning for whatever your sort of significant achievement that you're targeting would be. And full disclosure, I tend to fit way more frequently into the category of I just want to go out and be like, wow, I really crushed this compared to what I've been able to do in the past or what I've maybe done so far this year and try to have those high watermarks. And, you know, it's having been in positions of winning um, things as a coach, maybe more so than as an individual athlete, 
Um, and then, you know, but also having done um, winning as a competitor at some level, and then going out and having the opportunity to have also the contrast between the sort of run-of-the-mill performance of I'm doing this and I've been doing this and I've been doing this and then all of a sudden the wow this is a transcendent experience you're talking about that same elevating outcome and that's a part of the feeling good of doing this stuff right and when you know and you can start to feel confident you're going to work towards that that's meaningful and I also think it feels really great to go out and do something and know that you just executed to the best of your ability and you don't have to you know you can be in a context where you can be competing to win and you don't have to actually win like you could have been it could have been possible but when you know and you can engage with wow I really did this and that was incredible for me I could have won and I didn't that's means a lot and having been in situations where you know being close to winning and losing is because of make mistakes that you made in your approach leading up to that target, you know, that's a different feeling. I mean, it's the same as, in some ways, it's the same as, you know, coming up shy of a targeted improvement. You know, if you're trying to set a personal best for a given distance, maybe in uh, running road racing, but it's also true that it's not really about, at least from my point of view, and I know some people really personalize this and sort of try to create that sense of interpersonal conflict as a driving factor for why they, they're motivated to um, race and prepare and compete. And they look for that interpersonal rivalry. And I do think it's more fun to challenge and race people you know, but I think part of that is because you're sort of having more awareness of who they are. You have more awareness of their preparation and you get to sort of test your preparation against what they've done and I think that can be really exciting to do and when you lose sometimes it isn't that oh I don't want that other person to have or that other team to have the opportunity to win but it was sort of a frame of reference for how you're understanding that and all those things apply as we're trying to look at this concept and I think having a balanced and an equilibrium understanding of what winning is, what winning means, what you're really looking for is significant. And we'll throw out the caveat because there are certain individuals for whom this is significant, that winning can also be important because we're assessed by our peers and by decision makers and stakeholders and the power brokers in these sports at particular benchmarks. And you can go out and be doing awesome things in training and not be recognized as being legitimate because for the standards of that sport, you might need to be executing in particular contexts at, at certain times. And sometimes going out and being recognized and acknowledged and having your process noticed in a way that it hasn't been noticed before is another form of winning. Right. But that's another form of adversity of if there's institutional issues. I mean, and there's no reason to in this podcast to play around it. USA cycling is a space that has huge issues identifying people's capacity. Running is a super competitive sport and it's really difficult 
to get places. But if you go out and you run a time, nobody can argue that you ran that time, right? That's a pretty objective standard. But with cycling, there's so much rhetoric and there's so much people thinking that they know and they're identifying things and arguably looking at things in what might be the wrong places all the time. And that can make it difficult if you're not in the system, if you don't have your foot in the door, to really try to demonstrate what you can do. And if you want those opportunities that might lead towards professional status um, and towards those, um, you know, ultimately maybe financial benefits, you know, that's also significant, right? So that's also another stake that can be involved in winning. So in a sort of maybe like idealistic world, you know, this would be something where everybody had leisure time and we could all pick activities of our choice and we could engage fully in those and, you know, invent ourselves in that space, build up a sense of esteem, self-actualize, test ourselves against each other in competition, all walk away feeling fulfilled that we got to experience the excitement of being involved in the race, etc., etc., etc. But the world is not a perfect place. However, I still think that that, in a way, is important because those imperfections become opportunities if you understand how to use them. Why make a distinction at all, then, right, between the women's race and the men's race if I'm saying that there's no actual distinction that should be made on the basis of male-female I think it should be the basis of person-person, right? And there are patterns that define, right, um, men and women, um, male and female in a athletic, physical performance sense, but you still have to know yourself as an individual first because the variance within the, you know, subpopulations of those groups is, you know, also significant. And I think we need to know which race it is because we always need to understand um, the actual event. But there are things that we need to understand, and there are things that people think we need to understand that I would argue are actually unimportant. So things that are important, we want to know the size of the race. So how many people are in the race, that matters. If you're doing a marathon and there's 18,000 or 30,000 people, that's going to have a big impact on performance. If you're doing a bike race, we care about the size of the race. All right? What's the size of the peloton? That makes a big difference. You know, how many riders are likely to be there? There's a big difference between racing in a group of 20 to 30 people versus racing in a group of um, 40, 50, 60, 70, 100, 120 the energy-saving opportunities are different. The dynamics of the race are going to be different. And that all is going to determine, um, in many ways, your concept that you're going to be building towards. The other kind of density that we want to think about isn't just the density of the field in terms of how many bodies are out there in the race group, but we also want to know something that's not as immediately obvious Density of fitness, how close in fitness to each other are the riders? And what are the performance and behavioral incentives for the riders in the race? And let's just call these peloton norms, uh, for lack of a, a better phrase. 
Um, I think you could. Some people might say, "Well, so you're talking about tactics." I'm not just talking about tactics. I'm talking about the fact that there's way more things that influence and help you understand, um, you know, how people are going to act. If you have an awareness of people's race history, if you know people's personalities, if you understand how different personalities interact, um, if you understand the way people think about the sport in general, like what's their baseline philosophy, you can use that in one direction or the other. In coaching cross country, I knew and we talked about this as a team that the mentality for a lot of teams was to just go out and run. But essentially, they didn't, I don't think they were thinking about it in these terms, but practically speaking, to go out faster than you could maintain. And so for us, the act of um, self awareness was to not engage with that. And we just ran everybody down over the last two miles of the course because we had the fitness. To run and you can't run away from people. It doesn't work like that. You know, whoever is the most methodical and efficient is going to use their energy best and produce the best result. And if they're fitter and they're using their energy the most efficiently, they're going to win. And in a sense, in that Peloton space, that's what you're trying to do. You need to understand what the fabric of that space is. And it's different in any given race. And that's what's interesting about if you're in a race circuit where you're seeing the same people um, frequently, right? And you have sort of formally defined circuits, but any race circuit environment is one when you race against the same people throughout a period or a season or a year of competition, that's an opportunity to learn about that. So one of the benefits to racing is you get to build that concept of that. And you want to know who people are, you know, because some people might actually be capable of things, but not realize it themselves. And that will hold them back. And that can be used to your advantage. And some people might um, think that they can do things that they can't do. And so that and people can be shockingly predictable. And that's really useful, too, because that also helps you understand what the race is, because the course isn't the race, especially in cycling, right? The race is a combination of how you approach it, and then specifically in cycling, the race is what people turn that ride into, right? So when we look um, at these two things, um, that's what's important. What doesn't matter? I actually don't care about how long the race is, and I don't care um, how many times you have to go up key features of the race. It's really popular in commentary on cycling events and, you know, among cyclists too, to go and want to know where's the hill, what's the hill. I don't think it's bad to do that. I think you want to have that awareness because you need to know the course. All right. Having said that, I don't think that there's some sort of fundamental value to then defining the race around that component. Okay, and I especially don't think that that's how you should target that from a fitness perspective. So I'm thinking, let's say just like 10 laps. Um, we don't know. I don't know um, what the exact number will be for the women's race. I don't have any access to those conversations, to say the least. But let's say 10, because um, that's a number that I can probably remember throughout the podcast. And I think that means going up the Sherrod Road climb 10 times. 
And if the course is what it is, you know, you're looking at, let's again, pick some simple numbers. Let's say each lap takes 15 minutes, right? And that could be plus or minus, but the reality is it's going to be plus or minus on the day in question anyway, because what's the momentum of the group? But let's say 15 minutes, and then let's say that the climb itself, we're going to say that's approximately two minutes to two and a half minutes. And I think that's probably fairly accurate based on the historical data that I've looked at. And the tendency is that over the course of the race, you go from maybe closer to two and a half minutes to closer to two minutes, right? So we see that progressive intensity. I don't think that training for the hill is the right way to do it. I think a lot of coaches, a lot of athletes take this idea that, well, this is where the race is going to be decided. It's my ability to go up that that's going to matter. People are going to look at that and they do this. I mean, I know that they do this already, that they look at this and they say, okay, well, that's a two minute effort. So I need to get as good as possible um, at two minute efforts. And that leads to the sort of VO2 max anaerobic concepts of training. And then you're going to see, you're going to pull up your zone chart and you're going to look look at that chart and you're going to say, okay, that for me means doing a lot of um, zone five efforts, maybe zone six efforts. And people might do, you know, blocks of VO2 max training And then, you know, as they get closer to the event, they might, you know, do anaerobic training um, or what's called anaerobic training in a sort of colloquial sense. And that's fine. I think I would like people to continue to do that because that plays into our strategy. One of the concepts is to understand or one of the parts of our concept is understand how other people train and then train better than them. Okay, because that's the only thing that you really can control is you can control your preparation. And if you know you're training better than other people, that's helpful. And even if you don't know that you're training better than other people, pretend that you are like convince yourself that that's the case, because if you can have that mindset, that's going to really help you get in that feel good space. And that's a second thing that's going to be super important is we need to look at How can we be in that feel-good space, okay? Because if we can be in that space for an extended period of time, that's when you're going to be able to be productive. That's when you're going to be able to train effectively. And because you can't do those things unless you feel good, okay? So that needs to be a priority. The third thing is you need to not try to follow the zones, all right? You need to have an organized approach to training, but if you say, this is going to be the year I'm going to freaking put it down at the pro national road race, then you can't have this mindset of, okay, boom, we're out here. I'm finally going to commit to the zones and I'm finally going to do this because you're going to fail a ton of your training if you are able to stick to it, which basically means that you can't stick to it or you're going to burn out partway through because it's unsustainable or you're going to get to the race and you're going to realize that you've sort of used all of that how do you write how do you quantify it energy to just execute the training and nothing's really going to be there you may generally be strong but you're not going to be strong 
in the way that actually matters. And people who seem, you know, undertrained, quote unquote, at least by the norms, right? Undertrained is a total bogus concept, by the way, because it's predicated strictly on evaluation of uh, what people are doing relative to what they aren't doing. And believing and recognizing that our training is unique is important. And I would say for anybody who listens to this podcast and puts these ideas into effect and um, does them well, I think you will recognize at the end of that process that you know you are in a unique place in terms of your fitness and you're in a unique place in terms of how you got to that level of fitness. And you're going to be eclipsing people whom are busting themselves and you know absolutely miserable and more or less just counting down until they're done. And we don't want to be counting down. We don't really want to be watching the sands going through the hourglass. There should be an, a huge aspect of joy in just going out and doing the training. I think that matters significantly. A fourth thing that we want to understand, and right again, all of these are transferable concepts towards any time you approach a target and you then have to begin by building that concept, feet climbed per mile. Okay, this is really important. Feet climbed per mile. All right. Or the sort of relationship that I came up with for this is feet per rep per mile. All right. So what does this mean? So I think a simpler or a maybe not simpler, I think feet per rep per mile um, is pretty simple. But a more common thing that we could probably relate this to maybe say, is the same as this as VAM v or VAM, which uh, is an Italian cycling concept or term, uh, which means basically average ascent speed or average ascent velocity. I think a lot of people think it means vertical ascent in meters, um, which it doesn't, but at the same time, it certainly could because that would probably be accurate. Um, and I would also emphasize that this vertical ascent in meters needs to be infralactate, not supralactate. Okay, so for people who are out trying to do the targeting the two minutes to two and a half minutes training, um, that's going to be being supralactate. And you can't go to Knoxville and do a circuit where you go up a very intense hill 10 times for two to two and a half minutes and be super lactate. If you can do that and keep up over the hill the last time, you have no chance of winning as far as I'm concerned. It's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that you could win. Just as it's not, it's totally reasonable to do apply this process and not win. We're saying, like, what is going to give you the capacity to win? We're not saying we can't guarantee a win. Running is, in some ways, more tangibly and verifiably coachable because of the use of times. And I would argue, right, you know, coaching um, encourages the focus on times because as a coach, it's an easy way to validate what you're doing. You know, maybe the athlete doesn't win the race but they can go out and run a PR and you're like well you know the athlete is in way better shape so I'm you know still competent at what I'm trying to do 
And so if you're training for two minutes, I think runners should be nodding their heads as we say this. If you're training for two minutes, you're training for the 800. And any recovering half milers out there, okay, um, such as myself, I was once a half miler in one evolution of my athletic journey, um, know that when you really train for the half mile, you're not really going to have a ton of endurance. Because if you really, really, really focus in specifically on that effort, and you know a good half miler is obviously going to do the half mile, um, you know, hopefully better than two minutes. Uh, but you know, for all intensive purposes, let's stick with two minutes as our number. If you're training for that effort, you're not necessarily developing this significant capacity for endurance. You know, you're probably building up the aerobic capacity that you need in order to do the training that you need to do that. I think when Peter Snell, who ran a world record of, I want to say, 146 in the 880 yards, so the true half mile on a grass track, you know, when he went out and, and did a, a marathon race, I don't think he, he was able to finish, um, is, if I'm remembering this anecdote correctly. I mean, he ran probably close to five-minute pace for 20 miles. I mean, they were well-conditioned, but, you know, he couldn't execute the end of that. And, I mean, that has to do with, at the end of the day, it is a trade-off with this sort of thing. Horses for courses, there's some validity to that. And it's more about how you direct your training in different ways. And there are some runners who can be great over the 800 to the 5,000 meter, but it's not necessarily the norm. And there's nothing wrong with that. A great distance runner can run a great effort for two minutes, but a great half miler isn't going to be a great distance runner. Okay, it's not doesn't go to the same direction. Um, BT, who ran the half mile uh, at my alma mater once upon a time, uh, was somebody who could run an incredible 800, um, but according to the eyewitness accounts, wasn't necessarily able to translate that up. And there was a pretty good half miler um, at school when I was there, younger than me, a sub uh, 150 guy. And he didn't, it's not like he was going out and doing proportional performances at longer events, right? So moral to the story is you can get really good at two minutes and you can be like, wow, my two minute effort is improving. It's improving. And you can really convince yourself that you're doing everything great, but it's like, don't go to the pro national road race and expect to do well, go to the velodrome and do, you know, a 4,000 meter individual pursuit. That's where you're going to see some, some sort of results from that. Okay. And even frankly, then you might struggle because to go from the 800 to the mile is sort of like going approximately from two minutes to four minutes. And, you know, the reality is that a lot of people who focus on the half mile and get really good at that effort struggle to transition up just another two laps around the track, just another two minutes. So, so that would be a big mistake, I would argue. We want to be focusing on a different understanding. And this brings us back 
to feet per rep per mile. Now, VAM, right, we can think of as a measurement of meters per hour, right? So at a certain point, we're playing games uh, with units of, of distance. But I think that the distinction, VAM is calculated by taking the number of meters that you've ascended and multiplying that by 60 and then dividing that by the number of minutes that you've taken. And there's sort of essentially, right, logically too, but in physics there's a relationship between your vertical and centimeters and your power. And we had an episode in the podcast earlier about power to weight and how power to weight is, I think, this point of connection between running and cycling and probably other uh, sports too that are not done um, in the water. Although I'm sure in some way, right, in the water you're still overcoming resistance. But it's certainly prevalent in cycling and running. So VAM is the idea of basically you could then simply say that's getting more power, right? Except that it's power to weight because it's going to determine um, how fast you can go uphill and you can have more power. Um, and if that power is going up by virtue of increasing your mass, you will become a faster rider overall. But specifically on climbing, um, you might not really see an increase. The distinction here when we say feet per rep per mile, right, is the unit that the climbing volume is being measured against. One of them is basically velocity, okay? What I'm talking about, I think, is more of an issue of ratio, right? So for every mile of training, what matters? Does it matter how fast you're climbing or does it matter how much you're climbing? And the conclusion that I've reached and the concept that I'm arguing should maybe be if there's a single central concept, I think this might be close to it, is that in training, overall, if you can do more feet per rep, and we can also think of a rep maybe as a ride, not necessarily an interval rep, because I would argue training, like every training day is a repetition with a period of recovery and then a period of work. It's just that the recovery might be like 20 hours and involve all of the other things in your life and a full sleep cycle, and then you come back to it. And when you're approaching it this way, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go really fast. So I've also mentioned earlier in the pod, for those of you who have been keeping up with all the episodes, that I have done some research in the past looking at data from the pro-national uh, road race field. And so this data is from 2021, uh, um, and I may get around to posting it on the Instagram before the episode. So if I do, go there and refer to that. And I should probably at this time make a quick plug for the Instagram. If you've been following the show and you've been enjoying what we've been doing, we'd love to have you join us on that space at Black Cats Run. We'd love to open up the dialogue 
make that a space for people to share their perspectives, other ideas that they have, questions they have, things they want to see covered in the pod. Feel free to send us a DM. Let us know um, what you're thinking about um, as you're listening along. And, uh, you know, all ideas are welcome, right? That's the goal is to kind of expand our thinking here by sharing some different perspectives and maybe hopefully apply those and, and see the benefit in terms of getting a little stronger, faster, and just generally feeling better about what we're doing. At any rate, uh, when we think about this data and what are the findings here, um, so I looked at the uh, entry list uh, leading up to the event, and then I looked at, well, which of these folks in the women's field have data posted um, available on Strava? Um, and not everybody has a ton of that, but there um, were enough people, um, the majority of people have public Strava, so I was able to do some digging and look at some numbers, and I looked at um, how much riding they did. I looked at um, that in terms of miles. I looked at in terms of hourly volume. I looked at how fast um, do they ride, um, you know, and, and a couple other factors. But I particularly focused on those things I just uh, looked at. And I also compared uh, VAM against uh, feet per rep per mile. So again, that idea that I'm making a distinction at the end of the day where I'm saying that although for a lot of people it might feel like you can just sort of equate these two things as the same, I'm saying they're different. Um, and so what did I find? Okay, so I looked at um, some different categories here, and let me talk you through the findings that I made. So one of the things I looked at is the total number of rides logged, okay? And do the number of rides impact VAM? And the answer was no, that as uh, the number of training sessions increased, um, then the VAM, there was no correlation. The VAM was all over the place uh, regardless. Okay, right? And I had calculated VAM as aggregate from their training data. And if you want to argue that that's um, ineffective, that's probably a, a reasonable argument. Um, but I, I don't know that I agree. I think people's aggregate, I think the aggregate data is more representative of what somebody can actually do. And because you might say, well, their VAM is going to be lower because they're only doing specific things in certain contexts. And I would say, yeah, but just like Stephen Levitt, you know, advocates for in economics, you know, you look at the actual data, that's the best data set. That's what I'm applying here as a concept. Looked at do the number of hours that you do, does that impact VAM. And again, I'm not saying that VAM and feet rep per mile are, feet rep per mile are equivalent, right? I just said they're different things. Um, but, you know, we're working through towards this, okay? Um, so as hours go up, no correlation. VAM could be up, VAM could be down. So you're not seeing the number of training sessions or the hours of training sessions having an impact on that. What about velocity speed of riding? No relationship there either. And that's probably because especially true because if you ride faster, that's probably more likely influenced by the fact that you have less feet rep per mile, okay? And then we said, um, does feet 
per rep per mile impact velocity. And here I would say we saw a moderate correlation. The correlation that we see isn't necessarily the kind of correlation that's like, oh, wow, more feet rep per mile, we're going faster, that's great. It's actually the opposite, which actually I think you would think about it a little bit more and you'd be like, oh, that probably makes sense because when you're doing more climbing, you're probably going to tend to be going slower. So, and this is also true principle for runners when you're training, you know, just because you're going slower doesn't mean that bad things are happening. Okay. So we're also seeing this thing where lower training velocity correlates somewhat to more feet per rep per mile. Makes sense because more climbing, you're not going to be able to go as fast as people who do less climbing. Okay, and that's a part of the reason then why velocity and riding fast isn't really helpful because riding speed is not really reflective of what is actually having an impact on fitness and then as a consequence performance. What about uh, VAM? Does VAM impact velocity? And this is kind of interesting because we just saw that when you have more feet rep per mile, you start to see people riding a little bit slower. But there was no impact of VAM on velocity, okay? There is, as you look at a significant variation in VAM, going up and going up and going up, um, people's velocity really isn't any different, all right? So that seems to be suggestive of perhaps that there's some sort of self-sorting effect going on, right? Um, where like the faster, stronger riders are riders who are just naturally seeking out um, more challenging terrain, which sort of then seems to be in proportion, offsetting basically whatever their potential increase in velocity would be. And there's probably other conditional variables and do faster, stronger riders have access to different training environments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then we look at from this, we say, well, does uh, VAM impact feet rep per mile? And the conclusion there appears to be no, that a higher or lower VAM doesn't sort of predict that somebody in their training is doing more uh, feet rep per mile. Okay, so um, it, it doesn't seem to have a variance or an impact there. And what we really end up seeing is the strongest pattern that emerges. And I apologize if I'm not doing a great job trying to articulate exactly uh, what's going on here. But this is the most important thing, is that the most interesting and sort of self-evident pattern is that feet per rep per mile. So basically, the more climbing that you did per mile of riding, okay, so whereas VAM is how fast you climb in your riding, we're saying that actually, when you look at um, how many feet you climb, no matter how fast you're climbing, you demonstrate a better VAM. So, to condense all of this stuff, 
down into something that is manageable and a digestible conclusion um, after being perhaps somewhat unnecessarily convoluted, your VAM is greater if you have more feet rep per mile. That the athletes whom in training exhibited a higher level of feet rep uh, per mile that just basically climbed more. It didn't even matter how fast they rode. It didn't matter how many training sessions they did. It didn't matter how many hours they did. What mattered is in the riding that they did do, how much climbing they did overall had higher VAM. And if you take, again, VAM as essentially being a de facto proxy for power and power to weight as a concept of cycling performance, essentially what this means is that you're going to go uphill faster if you just climb more when you ride. Now, at some level, maybe that seems obvious, but if it's really that obvious, then why are people applying these VO2 max protocols? Why are people going and trying to say the hill is this long? You know, I need to focus on developing my two-minute capacity. Um, I think there's value in the sort of context of, you know, um, psychological preparation for a race, which is like you want to understand what is the adversity and maybe going out and doing things where you do that. But what you would be trying to get better at is going two minutes 10 times. And then you realize that's about endurance and that, okay, you can, you know, you need to maybe be reasonably strong for two minutes, but after a certain point, like if you can't, if you have a significant decay, and maybe this is something um, that would be a better option for a graph for this episode, and so we'll maybe we'll put that together and put that up too. But like if your decay in production every time up the hill, every two minute repetition, let's just think it's a it's a it's a workout where you do ten times two minutes. If your decay is significant. Um, that's a problem. Now, you could maintain velocity, but you could demonstrate effective decay in performance because if after each rep you have higher and higher lactate, that's a problem. If you go in and you show a higher and higher heart rate, that's a problem because then what happens is you're overly reliant on recovery in between. And so if there's any loss of draft, and I would say in the women's race, this seems to be harder because the fitness variation is greater and I don't and some people use that to try to belittle um, the women's field and I think that that's sort of idiotic Um, not just because it's mean but because it's harder to race when people have greater fitness variations because when people have a closer density of fitness the peloton is just way more likely to stay together so you don't need to be as attentive And you just are more likely to get sucked along. And in the men's race, which I'm not saying is easy. I mean, they're both hard. They're races, right? When you bring together people who are motivated and you unleash them on a course, they tend to make each other pretty miserable pretty quickly. Um, But in the men's race, it's a different, it is different. It's hard. It's just different. Okay. And that's where it comes back to those things of like, what do we want to actually understand about the race? Because if we know that the sort of reliance on drafting and the reliance on the field coming back together, if there's sort of smaller separations, 
if that can't be relied on to the same extent, that means that you're going to need a capacity to do something outside of the hill. And fixating on the hill sort of guarantees that that's going to work. And it's the kind of classic scenario where, you know, with these championship races, it's really interesting to see how people's behavior changes around this stuff because they get so worked up and excited, and that's a good thing. But it's a bad thing when it causes people to really chase after strategies or approaches that maybe aren't actually that effective for them. So conclusion, right? Feet rep per mile, that's what we want to apply when we're thinking about trying to pursue this. That's our core strategy, okay, is we want to climb as much as we can. too simple um not 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 to say that there's some rule that just because something's simple it must not be effective but i think that it just literally is too simple to say that um you just do more feet per mile of riding and every ride you do and then bob's your uncle okay it just that's not really what we're getting at we're seeing this pattern but i think the important thing is to then say well what is significant about feet per rep per mile, because it also doesn't mean that just going out and riding, you know, up the hill nearest your house or your apartment all the time is, you know, alone going to be impactful. Although it would probably work a lot better than some of the other methods and approaches that people are applying. So I think when we're looking at feet per rep per mile, we're now looking at something that is basically the state at which you're doing something much similar to running. Okay, so this might be kind of a bit of a stretch for the committed diehard, I only ride my bike cyclists, but you are probably screwing yourself over by not incorporating at least three to four days of 30 to 35 minutes of jogging into your training program. And if that comes at the expense of three to four hours of riding a week, that would still um, put you in a better place. Because a lot of the riding that we're doing is just sort of total dead time. And it's nice to be outside on your bike. And that's enjoyable. And I like doing that as much as anybody else who's uh, into serious fitness and riding. But I also run a lot. And I can tell there's a difference. If you run, you can get on the bike and you can ride fairly well. 
But if you only ride and you go out and you try to run, you basically can't run. And I've been on both sides of that, and it's nasty. You know, I basically lost the ability to run when I was focusing on the bike, and I didn't really appreciate, honestly, the extent to which that would happen. And I kind of reached a point where I was like, I feel like I should always be able to run five miles no matter what. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get back to that. And then it ended up being that after I applied that, that's when I made that jump from 300, 310 watts at my threshold to the 350 mark in terms of the lactate test. And in terms of performance, you know, looking functionally or practical threshold, um, closer to um, 360-ish. And again, that just comes back to like, what are we trying to accomplish with the feet per rep per mile? Like, it's a different kind of exertion. You know, when running, you're constantly having to work. And it's the constant pressure that leads to the adaptation. And when you're going uphill on your bike, you're just being more productive because the cardiovascular work and the muscular work is more likely to be continuous. The sort of physics and the kinetic energy and the inertia, blah, 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 you know, when you're riding too much on the flat is it's just hard to get in better shape. And I think a lot of people's relationship with hills is that they're for KOMs, they're for racing, or they're for workouts. And that people would maybe avoid hills because they sort of are making your legs tired in general, and then that limits your ability to do specific work. But doing those specific work isn't what's going to be impactful. Okay, it's just continuously doing lots of riding uphill. I mean, yes, doing a VO2 max protocol against a baseline of doing nothing is effective, but when you compare it against a baseline of just doing a lot of, you know, steady, feel good, you know, oriented training on terrain that just really accumulates the climbing, that's important. And I also think that going out and trying to find big hills and go up them for long periods of time and then you know go down the other side or turn around, I don't think that's really actually that necessary per se. I think that unless you're like that sort of practicing for a specific condition of a race and you want that experience, I think that just plot the rides that have the most feet that you can accumulate. And I think it might actually be more beneficial to have just constant up and down and up and down than to just have these protracted long climbs. Because if then it's like that climb is, you know, 30, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever, maybe you have something that takes you 40 minutes or an hour, I don't know. But then all you're really doing is 20 minutes to an hour. And for most people, it's more likely to be closer to, you know, 20 minutes or something than, you know, an hour of, of climbing time. And that's really the only time that is beneficial. So overall, you're still not going to have as many uh, feet per mile in training. And the other thing, too, is hours didn't seem to correlate to that improvement in, in VAM. So it seems that, like, even if it negatively affects your hours, you're still going to be better, have a better VAM. You're going to be more powerful, all right, which is that's what really matters. Okay, it's not about being skinny. It's about being powerful. It is power to weight. Okay, I think it's great that the word power comes first because we need to remember that power is the most important important concept. So 
and when we think about that, it leads us to um, our, I guess, maybe our fifth understanding is that what we care about is the concept of fitness. Okay, that's what we're looking for is the concept of fitness. When I coached cross country um, and the athletes were on their tear of just winning everything um, towards the end of that experience for me, uh, we'd like to say that our training was secret. Now, this was a joke. It wasn't like actually top secret, but we kind of liked the idea and I like to encourage the idea in sort of fun ways that, you know, like this is our secret weapon is like we're training in this way and nobody else is. And what's, you know, so interesting about the way our social spaces about sport are constructed is, you know, I, I'm going to lay out exactly how you win this race and it's not going to be persuasive to most people because, you know, we're just so entrenched in these kinds of dogmatic ways of thinking that it just prevents us from processing new information. And, you know, I'm not just throwing this stuff out here. I'm actually making evidence-based argument for this. Um, And this is an example of like a training approach that's unique. And what I actually, you know, recognize is when you're on to something that other people aren't doing, it doesn't need to be a secret. You could, I don't know, make a podcast and talk about it for anybody to hear, and it doesn't matter. You know, one of the challenges, to be fair, is that it's difficult to implement a training strategy when you're not actually working um, with another person who has an understanding of that. And, you know, the reality is that you could have taken our protocol um, and our approaches and our ideas, you could have given the color-coded schedule to every other team in the state and it wouldn't have helped because they wouldn't understand the concept. To them, it's just a plan. And that's why when we're talking about WinProNats, we're trying to outline this concept first before we do anything else. And, you know, and that's just this weird idiosyncrasy of human behavior is... People wondered what that group of runners was doing, but if they knew exactly what they were doing, they wouldn't do it. And it's interesting because we didn't do the kind of Ladarian level volume that, say, you know, York High School, one of the kind of more iconic, high performing, long running, high performing um, cross country programs uh, in the States um, did. But our sessions, of emphasis, the days um, that were significant uh, were maybe of a quasi uh, Ladarian nature in the sense that, like, we did a fair amount of running on those days. You know, we weren't doing, we weren't like logging 20 mile days, but, you know, 10 miles um, to 15 miles or, you know, 12 to 16 miles was not uncommon between warming up, cooling down, and the workout. And that's not. A rule that's just sort of you know a general generalization but we chilled out more in between and maybe that was a kind of super compensation deference without really thinking about it of making space for that but we didn't follow like the true recovery model like running nine to ten miles before every major invitational isn't the true recovery model um and you know when we didn't do 
the approach that we ended up using when we did the true recovery model, the athletes sucked both at the championship meets and throughout the season. Um, the form just wasn't there. They couldn't, they didn't feel good. And when we switched, um, to just sticking to this stuff and, you know, getting in these, in these patterns and, and following these routines of training and physical activity, people felt much more predictable and they felt better and they raced better. And so I guess the point of this is to believe and recognize that your training and your approach and understanding of what you're doing is the key. And, you know, doing that, you know, is also a cognitive aspect of this, right? It's not enough to give the schedule. And I will give a schedule, right, to complete this exercise. I will detail a schedule and I will even post the schedule um, on the Instagram for people who want to see it as reference. If for no other benefit, then I think it helps the conversation to have that visual. So here we've identified what we want to focus on. And to review, right, we need to train better than everybody else, okay? And we need to figure out what that looks like and how to do that. In order to facilitate that, number two, we know we need to feel good, okay? If we can feel good, that's what actually makes it possible to train better. Number three is we don't want to apply these zones, okay? Because the traditional zones aren't going to work they're not sustainable. Even if they are sustainable for some people, most of us don't have the kind of like adrenal response um, or the kind of like very specific training center environment necessary to whip ourselves up into in executing that. The fourth thing we need to do is we need to understand this concept of feet per rep per mile. And we need to then recognize what does that actually mean? What conclusions can we reach from that? And not just say, okay, here's this hot ticket. Let's blindly apply this and think no more and just go back to being drones. You know, we have to think. And overall, like the goal is to focus on fitness. Like that's what we care about is we want to be as fit as possible. That's why I don't care how long the race is. And, you know, that's why I don't care about, you know, special training for the hill at Knoxville, you know, that that's dumb. Okay, it doesn't work. You need to be as fit as possible. The way you win pro nationals is being fitter than everybody else. Next segment on win pro nats, we're going to look at some data on an example of applying feet per rep per mile and how that had a benefit in terms of performance in a championship context. And we're going to go from the concept that we've sort of identified here to start thinking about functionally, well, how do we work towards that? Okay, because we're not just saying, well, you need to have more power. You do. And all of that, that kind of thing is not a breakthrough or an epiphany. We're saying that the way you're developing that is specific to sort of this steady state aerobically oriented stuff. So we've taken the VO2 max and we've pushed that off the table, but that still leaves a lot of other spaces to kind of consider and navigate. And then we're also going to then try to go into and say, what does the schedule actually look like? 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. If you're enjoying the podcast and you know somebody who also would find this kind of discussion to be interesting or thought-provoking, please feel free to recommend the pod to them. We'd love to have you also all enjoy, uh, join us um, in our space on Instagram at Black Cats Run. Make that a space for the dialogue to expand, um, hear what other people are thinking about, wondering about, what perspectives do you want to uh, see shared, do you want to hear represented. Um, we'd love to hear from you if you have any particular thoughts or things that you're wondering about um, or other questions that maybe you want to see covered in the podcast. We'll catch you next time.